It was last March 2022 when the question, what is a woman, was given to U.S. Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown Jackson. And having been asked that question, what is a woman, she gave the now infamous answer or statement, not giving an answer, I'm not a biologist. That response signaled the start of a debate in the wider culture over how to answer the question that maybe in times past seemed not a question at all, that it was never in question. But with the rise of the LGBTQ movement and the innumerable, it seems, repercussions of it, that answer has been questioned and brought into doubt. Earlier this week, came across an article from a faithful preacher down the road in Charlotte, Kevin DeYoung, writes for World News Magazine, and he writes about the distinction between male and female and talks about these repercussions that we see and encounter on a daily basis in picking up the news. He said, anyone with half an ear open to the news knows that we are living through a disturbing and disorienting cultural moment in which grown men and women don't know or pretend they don't know the difference between men and women. Trans news is in the news every single day, whether it's Dylan Mulvaney drinking Bud Light or J.K. Rowling getting pummeled online or entertainers coming out as non-binary or influencers lecturing their followers about preferred pronouns or manly looking women taking the prize in women's sports or drag queens gyrating for little children, or politicians lauding the ghastly disfigurement known as gender-affirming care, we are awash in a world that refuses to believe that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And that's sad. And so anytime a question this fundamental to our existence, our, as we would call in Bible terms, our anthropology, what it means to be human, what it means to be man, what it means to be male and female. When there's a question to our anthropology, Christians have the choice of two paths. In the name of progress, we can go the way of the world, or in the name of truth, we can go the way of God's word. And those are the only two paths available. We know that's clear from Psalm 1. Psalm 1 labels these two paths. The cursed way of the world, which is a walk of wickedness, a path with sinners that eventually ends up in a seat of scoffers, mockers of the truth of the word of God. That's the path of the world. It's what the world offers. Or you can take the blessed path of the righteous, Though not common sense to the common man, the blessed path is the one who meditates in God's word day and night, and because of that is firmly rooted and grounded in the truth of the word so that in the blowing winds of a cultural moment, that tree is not blown over. So to answer the question posed today, we think of Jeremiah speaking for God in Jeremiah 6.16 when he says, Thus says the Lord, stand by the way and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. Isn't that what we want? When, when we talk about, we do want to know the path forward. But we realize for an answer to a question like this, we have to go backwards. 
We're not looking for the answer in front of us when it's already been given behind us. And it's answered in the book of Genesis, written by Moses, 1400s BC. We're looking at an answer that's over 3,000 years old. And in the eyes of our society, that makes us antiquated, backwards, prehistoric. And we may be accused of all those things, but we know one thing. Let God be true and every man a liar. That's the rock we stand on. And that's how we move forward by looking backwards. So as we answer this question today, let's start talking about a work of God. Now my caveat for this whole discussion is this Genesis 1 through 3 section that we're going to look at three words that describe and define a woman. The three first words you encounter when you open your Bible about a woman aren't the only word in the Bible. This is a starting point, but certainly I don't have time to give you every point and the ending point. As in, this is formative in our understanding about the answer to what is a woman, but it is not exhaustive. It's not all of what the Bible says about women. It reminds me of spring of 2010, I think it would have been, when I started dating Shannon, my wife, that is, in case you didn't know. And um, I think it was the first time she said, hey, my dad would like to meet with you. And I said, sure. And so I went to her parents' house, and I remember walking up towards the house. I think Shannon went in, but her dad was sitting outside in the shadows. It was dusk. And I can picture him in a chair sharpening a knife. <laughs> and he says, have a seat. And so I did. And he says, so you're Adam. Yes. And you're wanting to date my daughter. Yes. First question out of, well, I guess now this would be the third question out of his mouth. Adam, what's your theology of women? I was expecting a few other questions maybe, like, so, do you like sports? Or even, do you, what's your favorite book of the Bible? What's your theology of women? And um, I started going. And uh, maybe I started in Genesis 1. I really don't know to this day what I said. But, you know, here we are. And so when I talk about a theology of women, you would get that from an entire search of the scriptures from front to back. We're just at the starting point. And that's the only caveat I want to give today is there's much more to be said. But if we don't understand the starting point, so that's why this sermon is for everyone. Though it, it is in honor of women, and of course it is Mother's Day, it, it's a sermon for all of us because we all need a theology of women. If we're going to stand against the tides of our times, every person needs to be able to start here. And maybe this is the, the, it's not the back door, but brothers in here, it is a side door if you don't know the answer to that question. I am extending a hand of help if some of y'all single brothers in the room were like, whoa, if I ever get asked that question, I'm done. Well, now consider I'm giving you a little starter packet today 
and you can take it and go with it wherever you would like. So the first answer to the question, just walking through the text in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we come across a woman is a work of God in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea, birds of the sky, cattle, over the earth, over every creeping thing. God created man in his own image and in the image of God he created him. But here we come across the first word for a woman in the Bible, male and female, he created them. And that's where we get our first word, male and female, he created them. Now, here's the thing about that word. It's just the first word you get for female. For what is woman? It's the word female. And it has nothing to do. Sometimes I teach you guys a little bit. I give you a peek behind the curtain of, of the words and what they meant in the Hebrew. And sometimes I'll say, hey, this word connects to this other word. They have the same common root. The, the word for female is in no way relation to male. Now, you see it in your Bible. You see male, and then you see female. And you might think, oh, the root word is male, and he created... no. There's no connection. The word for female, nekebah, and the word for male, zakar. They have no common linguistic point. And that's the point here. There's distinction. Now, we will get to, in chapter 2, where the words do relate. But right out of the gates, as God is at the high point of his creation, and he is at this end of chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, because he gives it extra time to explain all the other days, the five days of creation, we've had some good things, but we get on this day the best thing, the very good, and that's when God creates male and female in his image, in his likeness. But you might be saying, Adam, you still didn't give us a definition and that's true. But I gave you something more important. I gave you the person that gets to make the definition. Before you get a definition for what is a woman, this is what you get in Genesis 1.27. God makes the definition, not man. He creates male and female, and he calls them two distinct genders. Though there is created from what? From the dust and then the female from Adam's rib. We'll look at that in Genesis 2. The fact of the matter is, if God defines and he did male and female, then no one else in history gets to come along and do what? Erase his definition and write a new one in. So here's your definition. Male and female, he created them. Different, distinct. This is the line of all definitions for creation. And rebellion against God in Romans 1.26, shaking a fist against God, begins when somebody wants to, reveal, wants to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, Romans 1.18, because that which is known about God is evident within them, and yet, even though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God. And how else do you dishonor God rather than rejecting his definition from the jump? It wasn't long ago that no one would even ask the question, what is a woman or what is a man for that matter? And it wasn't because no one knew the answer. Oh, what a mystery. <laughs> the smarter people that came before us would just say there was no contest for that answer. You didn't have to stand up and put the question on the board and ask the class. But see, times have changed. Male and female haven't. God's truth has given way to what? What's the phrase? My truth. Today, people give absolute authority to their own inner thoughts and feelings rather than any external objective sources. In short... 
authenticity to self has replaced authority in God. Personal authenticity. Who I think I am. Who I say I am. Now is given greater authority than the very authority of God himself. It's not even about a person's thoughts. It's about how they feel. And to be your authentic you, you get to define who you are, is the way society is today. Hyper-individualism, where people now trust their feelings over and against God's authoritative truth. A shift is why the world can accept a man who identifies as a woman as a woman. Theologian and college professor Carl Truman up at Grove City College in Pennsylvania writes in his book Strange New World that came out last year about why we find ourselves in a hyper-individualistic society recounts this uh, hypothetical situation. The sentence, I am a woman trapped in a man's body would have been nonsense to my grandfather. So he's talking about a generation ago. Had it been uttered by a patient to a doctor in the mid-20th century, the doctor would almost certainly have responded that the patient had a psychiatric problem and that his mind needed to be treated to bring his feelings into line with his body. Today, the doctor is more likely to respond that the problem is such that the patient's body needs to be brought into alignment with those inner feelings. That is the way it is. When we grant decisive authority to our feelings over God's facts, about gender and sexuality, we find ourselves lost on Psalm 1's path and headed for what? Destruction. The only way back is God's wise path where you get not just the genesis of creation, you get the genesis of gender in Genesis 1.27. And it's not just some facts to observe about male and female he created them. It's a blessing that he is going to use them for in verse 28 and 29. God is going to bless them and say, be fruitful and multiply. The first part of the, as theologians call it, the cultural mandate. In Matthew 28, you get the great commission. But the first commission was in Genesis 1.28. Fill the earth and rule the earth. Comes down to those two things. God has filled the earth with everything man is going to need except he hasn't filled it with man. There's just two of them. Everything else is going to take care of itself. But God says, I'm giving you this mission. You're going to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then you're to subdue it. You're to rule together over the fish of the sea, birds of the sky, every living thing that moves on the earth. Notice it's a dual command. The male and female are to do this ruling and reigning and subduing together, even though they're different. In verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. That, my friends, is God's divine design. Not to be changed, not to be challenged, not to be questioned, but to actually be rejoiced in, in God's perfect world. Two words, male and female, signifying two clearly separate genders, equal in worth and value in the image of God. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? The, the, the phrase, the image of God, it, it, en it encompasses God's uh, mental and moral qualities, if you want two categories. The mental qualities of higher intellectual ability, rational thinking that the, created, the rest of creation didn't have. And, and not just higher ability to think and to reason, but, but also moral 
responsibility and understanding, which would lead to ethical culpability. The, the, the man and woman would be capable of carrying the characteristics of God in them, those things that also creation doesn't have. They were a cut above the rest. And at this high point of creation, God includes, not excludes, or makes light of the genesis of gender. The argument being made today that flies in the face of this is the lie that there is a spectrum of gender along which people can identify based on how they feel. Do a quick Googling of today's gender spectrum. The latest number is 110. It's insanity. There, in 2021, in, Facebook gave you 50 options. Now it's up to 110. It's gaining ground on the big box of Crayola crayons that gives you 120 options. And I don't say that to be snarky. I say that to sober us up. That's the reality we're living in today. There is no wise path forward giving even a minute to listen to the wisdom of the world because it's anything but wisdom. It's actual moral insanity. And if you're open-minded to the way the world wants to separate biological sex from gender, you end up with a spectrum of broken and bewildering identities, a person that absolutely has no answer for who they are. No answer whatsoever. At the most fundamental level. So we need God's word to find an answer for who a woman is, who a man is, and what they're for. And the starting point, again, is, it's not the ending point, but the starting point is Genesis 1, 26 and 27. A woman is a wonderful work of God. That's the first word you encounter to answer that question. And if we're gonna answer that question, we need the answer from God's word. So you get asked that question, that comes across your plate, you're wondering about it. First answer? Open to Genesis 1.27, and it's right there. Male and female. Two distinct words. Second answer, a wife of one. Now you have to turn to the zoom in. Genesis 2 is, is the zoom in to day six of creation. Genesis 2 begins as a recapitulation of the work that God did in verses 1 to 4, which really in your Bibles is an extension of, day, of, of chapter 1. Chapter 5 in Genesis 2 starts now this day, this uh, let's see the details of when God created man in the garden. Verse 7, the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And so in verses 5 to 17, all you really have in summation is that God has done a good thing in creation, but now there is a not good thing. A not good thing is verse 18, it's not good for a man to be alone. We're not sure how long Adam was alone, but I can personally testify as an Adam that when Shannon is away, domestic life goes downhill pretty fast. So not saying any disasters were ensuing in those opening moments of Adam's life, but by verse 18 in chapter two, God recognizes man needs a companion, a best friend, or in the language of your Bible, verse 18, I will make a helper suitable for him. Two beautiful words describing what Adam was lacking. And the word for helper is an amazing word in the Bible. I lift my eyes up. Where does my help come from? 
My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. It's no small thing to be a helper. It's the Holy Spirit's name, Jesus says in the upper room. It's a a subordinate thing to be a helper. Well, there's a role that includes submission in that. But the Holy Spirit is, is called the parakletos, the one who comes alongside, who Jesus says, I will send a helper for you. For God the Father to be described as our help from, from heaven and for the Holy Spirit to be the helper. That's an honorable term. And then the word suitable describes helper, which is uh, this beautiful word that just describes something that's custom fit, that corresponds. It's, it's, a, it's just a simple word for something that makes a, a fit with something else. And God is saying, Adam needs one of those. So how does God solve the problem? Verses 19 and 20, he brings a zoo to him. Hey, God's funny, isn't he? he? He brings him the zoo. So beasts of the field and birds of the sky and creatures on the ground are coming to Adam, and, and he's naming them. And um, he doesn't find his best friend, sorry, fellas. A man cave and Fido is not the high point of our existence. And if Fido is the only person that can understand me, I don't think that's um, in praise of my complex intellectual, social, and emotional needs. My opinion. He needs someone else, a helper suitable. In verse 20 says, a helper suitable was not found, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And he slept. And then he had the greatest moment of waking up in the history of all men. He wakes up and he looks over and God had fashioned a woman from the rib which he'd taken from the man and brought her to the man. What an amazing picture. What a gift of grace a woman is in this moment. Nothing like it in all the world. And and what's Adam's response in this moment? He sees this woman in without, and here's kind of the mind-blowing thing. So he sees her, and he just immediately erupts into poetry. Way to go, guy. <laughs> this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. Um, I'm sure there were no mirrors in the garden that Adam could identify something that would correspond to him. But when God designs something so perfect, so suitable, so custom fit, he immediately can recognize it. She's distinct. And she's for me. And she's unlike anyone else and anything else that that God has done on this most glorious day. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Dutch theologian Herman Bavink writes wonderful prose describing this scene, what all was going on in this gift that God was giving to Adam in this moment. He wrote, Adam is a physical, but also a spiritual, rational, and moral being. And that is why Adam could not find a single creature among them all that was related to him and could be his helper. He gave them all names, but not one of them deserved the exalted royal name of man. Thereupon, the first motion to master Adam when he wakes up and sees the woman before him is that of marveling and gratitude. He does not feel a stranger to her, but recognizes her immediately as sharing his own nature with him. His recognition was literally a recognition of that which he had felt he missed and needed, but he could not supply 
himself. I love that. And so he calls her woman. And and these are where the two names in the Hebrew do relate. The name for man in, in the text there, she was taken out of a man, is the word in Hebrew, ish. Now, I do know some of you wives in here get a chuckle because you're like, when you see your hubby doing hubby things and you walk in, you're like, he burnt the food, yeesh. You're speaking Hebrew. You didn't know it. You're, you're going back to the ancients of days and the, the early language. That, that response to go, yeesh, is exactly what a man is. He is an ish. But what he needed, and it's in the text, was a vowel added to the end when he says, and she is an isha. And there's where you have the complementary design. Distinction in chapter one is what God is getting across to us. Male and female aren't the same. But God has created them to be one. And you get that in the language of it. There's unity, there's oneness, there's equality in origin, made in the image of God. Genesis 1 establishes only God gets to create and define and make distinct a woman from a man. Genesis 2 adds to the definition by making a distinction that she doesn't just belong to any creature in creation, but only to one. And he knows it, and she knows it. And because of that, verse 24, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You just wonder what's up with that addition, it seems, to the end of that. This close of scene, and there are no clothes, and they're not ashamed. Why is that significant? Because not only are the man and the woman perfectly pure in God's eyes, they're perfectly pure in each other's. There's no critical spirit in Adam to say something derogatory to his wife. And in this sinless moment, there is nothing to be critical of in Eve for Adam to see. That's why one theologian says you can summarize chapter 1 in Genesis as creation, but you summarize chapter 2 as paradise. Because that's what it is. And this is how a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, are to see and accept each other. After the curse, flaws and all. Before, perfect. And this is how God sets up us to understand us, ourselves at the most fundamental level, that this woman who belongs to God and is a work of God is now a wife of one. But we have to turn the page, for there's one more name to know from the beginning of the Bible for us to get our starting points for what is a woman. Genesis 3 tells us that in verse 20, that she is a mother to many. Now to get to that verse... And it's a beautiful verse. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Her name Eve, meaning that. It's different than he calls her woman because she was taken out of a man. And by the way, fellas, God did not take her out of your head so that she would reign over you. He did not take her out of your toe so that you would walk on her. He took her out of your rib so she would stay the closest place to your what? To your heart. There's always a purpose in design. And it was perfect in God's purpose in design until Adam and Eve sinned. Verses 1 through 7, the serpent comes into the garden and tempts Eve to doubt God, to, to buy the lie that they need to be authentic. 
to be their own authority, to fulfill all that God has designed them to be. Sound similar? God knows in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like him. You'll be your authentic self. You'll know good from evil. You won't have to rely on God telling you what's right and wrong anymore. You can have it. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food, delight to the eyes, desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate and gave it to her husband and he ate. And then as a sad echo of verse 25, when they were naked and not ashamed, the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. It's interesting that the first thing when their eyes are open isn't that they knew they had sinned, that they knew they'd been deceived, that they knew they disobeyed. They saw something now flawed in one another and they tried to make their own covering. They knew something was lost. What was lost? Well, when sin comes into the world, what does it do? First, sin ruined the perfect union between God and man. The perfect union between God and man was severed when man disobeyed God's command not to eat of the tree. But also it ruined the perfect union between man and woman. When they would now see each other's sins and rather than cover in perfect grace, they would be prone to try to cover things themselves. That's what sin does. It brings death to everything it touches. As one theologian states, the contagion of sin at once spread through the entire man, leaving no part of his nature untouched. That's what death does, spiritually speaking. It takes from us our holy state and puts us into an unholy state known as depravity, where now our relationship with God is severed. An unholy creation with a holy creator. No longer could they experience relational communion with God as they once had. They couldn't live in his presence as they once did. And the end of Genesis 3 ends with God removing them from the garden. But it wasn't just a spiritual death on the inside, of course, the death on the outside. And we do all return to dust. In fact, Adam's name would remind him of that the rest of his life. And part of the curse to dust he would return. But was all lost in this moment in verse 19 when... The curse of working the ground as opposed to the blessing of being told to fill and subdue or the curse of childbearing as opposed to being fruitful and multiplying. There is perfect correspondence between the two wonderful blessings God had given by way of command to Adam and Eve. Fill the earth and rule the earth. And now the curse of childbearing would make the filling painful and the blessing of ruling the earth. You would have to Work the ground by the sweat of your face and eat the bread against the thorns and thistles. These, this is the curse that comes after the blessing. What would Adam do? What would he say? Is everything lost? Well, look what happens in verse 20. The last word we get for a woman comes in the aftermath of the curse. But the name isn't a curse. The name is actually Adam by faith, still believing in the promises of God. He called his wife's name Eve. In that moment of losing everything, by faith, Adam lays hold of a promise. She's going to be the mother of all the living. Adam saw through the brokenness and the pain and remembered God's unbreakable promise. 
we will be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The promise of childbearing for Eve was going to be painful and that stood, but so did God's promise. Though Adam failed earlier, he returns in a step of faith back to God's path and believing God's faithfulness and in that names Eve in faith. Eve, you're the mother of all the living and though our sin caused us to gain the earth's curse, it has not caused us to forfeit heaven's blessing. That's beautiful. That there is promise even in this moment of pain. And then for God to respond in verse 21, as he always does when we, by faith, take him as his promise, he provides. What does he provide in verse 21? The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Brothers, what does this teach us? Sisters, what does this teach us about who our God is? That right from the beginning in the garden, where sin abounds, what abounds more? God's grace. God's grace abounds more. God still loved Adam and Eve. And even for their good, he removed them after he clothed them from the garden, but he didn't remove them from his grace. Even the next act of God after banishment from Eden, what happens at the beginning of chapter four? Eve is able to conceive a child. And then in the next act of man, sin, Cain slew Abel. What's the next act of God's grace to Eve and Adam? Seth was born. And who was Seth? He was the one through whom Christ would come. And on and on history goes. As Paul says in Romans 5, the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Brothers and sisters, Grace still abounds today, and you only find it in Christ. I know some of you might be here today uh, um, merely at the invitation of a family member. It's Mother's Day, and you felt it was a good day to honor mom or grandma and come to church with them. And maybe you have your own thoughts and opinions on the current events I mentioned at the beginning. And maybe you immediately in your mind said, here goes this guy, just like everybody else going to divide us going to put us in the categories of there's the people that think about lgbtq and are favorable for it and and here you know here's the pastor and in, in his self-righteousness condemning it but i hope you see what lays to waste any of those thoughts you might have is that genesis 3 is very clear that we're all sinners every one of us that's the starting point for every single person ever created Sinners by nature and by choice. So there isn't any great divide between the really bad people and the better. The only one that completes us, the only one that can change us, the only one that can fulfill us into who we actually are is Christ. So I'm not here today trying to make people go from being favorable to homosexuality to against it and only for heterosexuality. I'm not trying to make that kind of convert today. I have one mission in preaching the gospel and it is to convert people from darkness into light, from the death of their sin into life in Jesus Christ. And when you have life in Christ, when he's changed you from the heart, then you will see the world differently. You'll see it as God has designed it. 
And you'll see the world as the people that are, the, that are looking to change their identity, whether inwardly or outwardly. It's just an expression that every single person is made with. God putting eternity into your heart. You were made to glorify him. And you can't do that if you exist just to glorify yourself and be who you want to be and operate the way you want to operate. And Christ extends his hand to you today in forgiving grace and says, I can change you from the inside before you need to do anything on the outside. He gives you a new heart. He offers to you forgiveness of sin. But will you reach back? Will you receive his grace this morning? He offers you. When you do that, you see the world with new eyes. You'll see yourself with new eyes. And you won't, I promise you, question your identity. Because you'll say, my identity is in Christ. And who God says I am is exactly who I am. And from that you find satisfaction and contentment. And as Jesus says, you find life to the full. My joy will be in you and your joy will be complete. If you want that joy, if you miss that joy, you only will find it in Christ Jesus. And he offers you that in himself today. And that's a word for every person in the room. Now, I do want to say to the women here today that these are wonderful words. Each year Mother's Day comes and we want to rejoice with all the moms this weekend and encourage us all to remember and honor those whom it's due. But I get that in just walking through Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and pulling out the three words that describe a woman, that for some in here, that's painful. I get that. It makes you think twice as you preach it. Because I get that some of you say, that first one may be true of me, but not the rest. And maybe it makes you wonder, am I less? And God says, you're not. Created in his image. And with the mind he's given you, the heart he's given you, the will he's given you, the affections. You're created in his image and he loves you. And even in the body he's given you, whether it's functioned the way you wished it would, you're no less complete in Christ. And that's the hope for every woman in this room. Just because some of the words that described Eve don't describe you doesn't mean God's grace in creating you in his image is any less true. I wanted you to know that. And God's grace in providing for your future is no less true and no less sure. And God's grace in using you in some particular way to bring life to the world around you is no less true. He has a perfect plan for your life as well. Those three names we find in Genesis 1 and 3 are for every woman in this room because they tell you something wonderful about the God who made you. And so I was thinking about if I was in the unfortunate shoes of that Supreme Court justice and put on the spot in front of my peers and asked, what is a woman? You know, and in a moment of charity, thinking about her situation, I got a moment of clarity that her answer wasn't terrible as a starting point. 
I think, too, if I was asked in front of a bunch of really smart people in Congress or Senate, whoever those people were, and on the spot somebody says, what's a woman? I think to start with, me saying I am not a biologist would be a perfect start. But it wouldn't be where I'd finish. I'd follow it up and say, I'm not a biologist, but I am a theologian. And so are you if you have God's word. And you answer that question, what is a woman? Not by being a biologist. Not by having a PhD. You answer that question by knowing the word of God. Because you're a theologian. And you've been given the mind of Christ. And you can know the mysteries and wonders of the word of God that make you wiser than the wisest man or the wisest woman. So women have to understand the beauty and the wonder of the words that describe them as as much as men do so that you can represent the image of God as he has made you and reject the image of the world as it tries to unmake you. And the world more than ever before is trying to unmake women. The lies of feminism and now transgenderism have the same God-usurping goal. Feminism sought to destroy the idea of the image of God in male and female. Transgenderism is attempting to destroy the very image in the body itself. Because what sin wants to take is not just an idea, it wants to take the whole person. So what maybe was fought 30 years ago against the lies of feminism was just the lies of ideology, but now it's the lie of reality when you look around and a person trying to change their body. And that's what sin and Satan wants to do. He wants to what? Steal kill and destroy and what does 2 Corinthians 10.5 tell us to do we are destroying speculations if transgenderism and feminism is anything like every other ism it's a speculation it's a false teaching it's a doctrine of demons and Paul says we Christians are destroying speculations in every lofty thing these are lofty arguments aren't they I mean, you've got to come into a discussion with a person that knows their stuff, knowing your own from the Word of God. We are destroying speculations in every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of who? God. And what's more basic to a knowledge of God than knowing who you were created by Him? Knowing the difference between creator and creation and honoring that difference. And praising God for that difference. And not trying to question, who is God to make me this way? The pot saying back to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Paul says, no, we destroy any speculation and thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. So that's why we wanted to share these things today. Because male or female today, we all stand as God's image bearers, male and female. And we are to be the last voice of true sanity from God's word. And we need to be the last image, a physical image of true humanity living by God's wisdom. It's a both and today, friends. And you can't give an inch. You have to be the last voice of sanity representing God's word, but now in even in your bodies, in your appearance, you have to be a physical vision of God's true humanity, how he made us male and female. It's both. Who would have thought it would have come to this? But he hasn't called anybody else to it but his children. 
to be divine image bearers and reflectors to give him the glory. All women, single or married, young or old, your creators, your helpers, your life givers as daughters of God and descendants of Eve. You reflect your triune God in wonderful ways. God, your Father, ladies, is your creator, and you are to create in his image. You've been gifted with mental, physical, emotional, spiritual qualities to look around the world and, yes, subdue it, improve it, build it. God gave you all those gifts and abilities. Use them for his glory. Just like God, your Father, the Creator. And the Holy Spirit as your helper. You're to be a helper in His image. You have the opportunity to strengthen others, uplift others, encourage others, comfort others, bless others with the high and holy calling of helping. It's awesome. And then to top it off with Jesus Christ as your life giver. You may not be Eve in the way that she was the life giver. But as a new creation in Christ, you are a life giver because you've been given the opportunity to do what? Make a disciple. Evangelize. Give the good news of Christ to somebody so that they can experience the new birth, so that they can be born again, so that they can follow Christ. There's nothing more life-giving than that call. And you'll know that person that you pour into and bring them to Christ so Christ can save them. You'll see them and know them forever. What a difference that is. So over all the lies of the world, the one voice that matters the most is God's. And he gives you the number one reason it's wonderful to be a woman. Because your Father in heaven calls you very good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths this morning. We thank you for the power of them. We thank you that we can go back to the beginning. And before and after the fall, we can see the beauty and wonder of you creating women in your image and what you've gifted them and called them to do far surpasses anything that this world can offer. But we have to be people of faith who take you at your word and we do look around and we see the speculations and the lofty ideas lifted against your divine design. And we praise you that of the many gifts you give us of grace, you have graced us with your truth. And that stabilizes and strengthens us. And then your spirit helps us understand it and carries it into our hearts, which carries us along to live out your purposes for us. In Christ, there's no greater purpose for anybody in this room than to magnify your name and to bring your good news to needy people, broken people, helpless people who need your gospel just like we do. We pray all this in his name. Amen.